This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Now, when I was young, I wanted to be a professional tennis player. So I remember up on my wall, I used to have pictures of like uh, John McEnroe, Bjorn Borg. They were like the Roger Federer of today, right? Okay. Now, whether we like it or not, we follow people. You know, you play soccer, you want to be like Lionel Messi. Right? You know, you're a businessman, you want to be like Stephen Jobs. You're a politician, you know, you be like Barack Obama or somebody. But are people worth following? You know, eventually, people will let you down. Right? Whether it's your sporting icon, whether it's a business leader, whether it's a politician, whether it's your teacher, even your pastor, people will let you down. Is anyone worth following? And that's the question that we come to today. Because Jesus, as we've seen, has had many expectations placed on him. So over the last few weeks, uh, if you look up here on the slide, right, you see that Jesus was the Christ. He's the everlasting King. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Jesus, the Lord saves. But for the Jews, century after century, as you look in the Old Testament, people have come with great promise, great titles, great expectation, only to let the people down. You know, so Moses came, the great Moses, and he sinned in the desert and he died in the desert. The great King David came and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. King Solomon came and he was doing great things and then he had many, many wives and concubines and he was seduced into idolatry. So when Jesus comes, we ask ourselves the question, Will Jesus be any different? Will Jesus let us down? Is he worth following? Now, before we come to chapter 4, we need to take a few steps back and come back to chapter 3 because without understanding chapter 3, we really can't grasp the full meaning of chapter 4. So the last part of chapter 3, if you look up here in the slide, Jesus was baptized. And when he was baptized, he came out of the water and God spoke. God spoke two significant things about Jesus. Right? So at the moment where Jesus rose up out of the water, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And these two significant things that God said from heaven audibly actually go back to the Old Testament and say very significant things about Jesus. You are my son, comes from Psalm chapter 2. It says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So what it says here about Jesus, what God, his father, is saying about Jesus is you are king, you will inherit the earth, the earth will be your possession. The second part which says, with him I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah chapter 42, which is up here, it says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, or my chosen one in whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice on the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now we already read in our responsive reading that this person, the servant, is the suffering servant. Right, he is the one in Isaiah chapter 53, next slide, which we read about in our responsive reading, who will die to lay, because God has laid on him our iniquity. He is the one who will actually be crushed because of our sins. So if you want to understand it in a more graphic sense, I put up this slide here, the pictures, right? So Jesus is king, and Jesus is also the one who is the suffering servant who will go to the cross. Right? So you can see up here, he is the king, he is also the suffering servant who will go to the cross. But actually when you understand it in more detail, the next slide actually represents it more logically. Jesus is the one who goes through suffering in the cross to become king. He will go through the cross to become king. Now when you understand what God has proclaimed from heaven, then you understand chapter 4, then you understand the temptations. Okay, so we understand chapter 3 now, right? Okay, so let's go to chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came to him. So the Holy Spirit was given to Jesus when he was baptized and immediately then Jesus was brought into the desert where he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Now for the Jew who read the book of Matthew, desert, wilderness, 40 are very significant details because it reminds them of the past. It's a bit like Singapore, right? When you say raffles, it means something. For the Jew, 40 days, 40 wilderness, desert, it means something in the history of Israel. Because 40 days and 40 nights in the desert brings us back to Israel in the wilderness where she wandered for 40 years and more importantly, sinned against God. You see, the first son of God was Israel. In Matthew chapter 2, which we read, right, earlier on a few weeks ago, God had brought Jesus through Joseph and his family into Egypt, and he said that he would call them out of Egypt, and he would fulfill what was written in Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now the first son in Hosea chapter 11 was not Jesus, but was Israel. God's first son. The context of Hosea chapter 11 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But, but the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. So what we're supposed to see here is, Jesus, God's true son, is going into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested by Satan. But God's first mentioned son, Israel, wandered in the desert for 40 years and failed the testing, the failed the temptation that she faced. So the question that we're meant to ask here is, will Jesus be able to pass the test? Because Israel failed the test the first time. So will Jesus fail or pass? Will the true son of God pass the test in the desert 
after 40 days. So Satan comes and tests Jesus. Right? The devil comes and tests Jesus. The first test begins in verse 4. Oh, sorry, in verse 3. The tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what is the temptation here? What is the test? Is it because, you know, Satan is saying, Oh, you think you're very good, right? You think you're very pro, right? You're the Son of God. Okay, prove it to me. Turn these stones and make them bread. Is that the test? Well, actually, how do you know? Well, the secret to understanding the test or the temptations is actually to see Jesus' answer. Because when Jesus answers, He answers from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament shows how Israel failed, what the test was, what the temptation was, and how Jesus passes. So Jesus' answer to Satan saying, turn the stones to bread is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now this quote actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, which is up here. right? And you'll notice this is the test that God's first son Israel failed. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what was the test? The test was whether God's people would keep His commands. Right, the next slide. The test is one of trust and obedience. And this is the test for Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit had led Jesus into the desert to be hungry. Right, that was God's will for Jesus, to be hungry. Satan was saying, do you really want to be hungry? As God's son, should you be hungry? Should you be starving in the desert? Would it not be better to reach out your hand and to turn these stones to bread so that you can feed yourself? Now, to give you a hypothetical example, right? Imagine if I put you in an empty room, <clears throat> and in the empty room, I put a fridge with a freezer, and I put your favorite food. I don't know what you like, lah. You know, chakwe tiao, a burger, a nice steak, chili crab, chai tao kui, wonton mee, the list goes on, right? And it's all in that fridge. Uh, it's, it's a freezer, so it lasts a long time. And then next to that fridge is a microwave. So you can microwave anything you want. And I say to you, okay, I'm, I'm not going to lie, but I say to you, okay, don't eat until I come back. Don't eat until I come back. When I come back, you can eat. You wait a day, two days, a week, two weeks, three weeks, 40 days, and I've still not come back. What will you do? Will you listen to me and obey what I said to you? Or will you reach out your hand and take your favorite dish out of the freezer and microwave it to eat for yourself? Right? That is the test. The test of obedience or the test of doing what you want to do. But God had 
deliberately led Jesus through the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and said, this is my will for you. And Satan says, don't listen to God. But Jesus obeys God and trusts God's word. He obeys God's commands. So the second test is then, verse 5. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, if you were to bring me to the highest point in uh, Singapore, I don't know what the highest point in Singapore is. But anyway, let's say you take me up to a high building, Raffles Place, and you ask me to jump down, what is the temptation? I don't, I mean, what is the temptation? Why would I want to jump down off the highest building in Singapore? Right? What is the temptation? Now, <clears throat> again, we said the answer is in how Jesus answers, right? So, the quote that Jesus says, do not test the Lord your God, is actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. It says, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. As you did at Massa, okay? Massa is not the Formula 1 driver, okay? Massa is a place. Okay, so how did Israel test God at Massa? In Exodus chapter 17, it tells us, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place to place, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? This is important, okay? Pay attention. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us die? Okay, that's what they said. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out, out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So this is the test. The test of whether you trust God's love and care. Because for the Israelites, they distrusted God and said, Does, is God really with us? Does God care for us? Did God bring us all the way out to the wilderness to kill us? They didn't trust God's love. And that's why, uh, the next slide, it's fundamentally a test of doubt, right? See, why did the devil bring Jesus to the temple, to the highest point? Because if God was anywhere on earth, he was at the temple. And if God would see anything, it would be at the temple. 
So if Jesus jumped off, God would know and it would force God to actually rescue Jesus or not. So again, let me give you a hypothetical situation, right? Uh, this sounds very much like uh, something you see on the Channel 8 Chinese drama or something, okay? It's like, imagine you are not so sure whether your wife or your husband really loves you. So, you devise this test. You call up your husband or your wife and you say to them that you've been in a really serious accident. And you're now at uh, 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 NUH or Changi Hospital and then you, you time how long it takes for them to come and visit you in the hospital. Because right? that's the real test of how much they really love you. Or maybe you create another test to see how much your parents love you. Because, you know, that would be an easier test. Right? So you pretend to be kidnapped and you see how much your parents are willing to pay as a ransom for you. Right? To see how much your parents really care for you. But, you know, the problem is if you create this test, it already shows that you're insecure about your husband or your wife's or your parents' love for you and your care for you. Right? The very fact that you have to create this test shows that there is doubt about whether your parents or your spouse cares for you. And that is the test that God right, is being tested, uh, that Jesus is being tested on, whether Jesus trusts God's care for him. But Jesus will refuse to put God to the test. He will not put God's care and love to the test. Now, I'm not going to digress. Right? I remember somebody actually gave this illustration. Say, we, we can sometimes do the same thing. We put God to the test. right? We say, God, unless you do this for me, right, I don't know if you love me. Unless you heal me, unless you give me this job, unless you give me this result, how do I know that you really love me? Okay, but that's a different issue altogether because we're not concentrating on ourselves. We're supposed to concentrate on Jesus here. Okay? Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, you notice he goes from the highest point of the temple to the highest mountain. And here the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. But what does he focus on? The splendor of the kingdoms of the world. Not the squalor, but the splendor of the kingdoms of the world. It's a bit like uh, last year I was looking for a new car, right? So, you know, you go to all the car showrooms and they show you the splendor of the car, the shiny colors, the, the, all the accessories, uh, all the, you know, the new car smell. And that's what the, the devil is doing for Jesus, right? Showing them the splendor of the world. But the question is, does the devil have the ownership papers for the world. Because, you know, you can look at all the cars you want. Because I went to some, you know, a parallel car dealers or so, right? And like, who owns the car? Who has the ownership papers for these cars? Does the devil really have the ownership papers of the world to give to Jesus? Because we've already read in Psalm chapter 2, what did it say in Psalm chapter 2? God was the one who would give the nations as an inheritance to Jesus. He was the one who would make the ends of the earth your possession. So the devil is lying. He is lying. He doesn't have the ownership papers of the world, but yet he's offering it to Jesus. 
But what is the temptation? The temptation is the shortcut to being the king without the suffering. We already said that Jesus has to go through suffering, through the cross, to become king. Satan is offering him a shortcut over the suffering to become king. Now, we sometimes make the mistake where we think that the only suffering that Jesus experienced was the cross. Right? The cross was the only place he suffered. But actually, we forget that the whole of Jesus' life was actually one of suffering, which led up to the cross. The whole journey of Jesus was suffering. So a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 2, remember, we read that Jesus was living in Nazareth in Galilee. Why was he living in Nazareth? To fulfill what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. To be a Nazarene was to be despised, to be rejected, to be treated with contempt. And that's what Jesus suffered in his life. And Satan was saying, look, why suffer? Why go through this journey? Why go through this route? Because if you worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Now, we must remember that God's first son, Israel, remember how she failed? How he failed, okay, son has failed. How he failed? Because he worshipped Baal. Turned to idolatry. Remember what we read Hosea? Jesus is not like Israel. Jesus rejects idolatry, rejects worshipping the devil, and worships God and serves him only. And then at the very end of verse 11, the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So I think by the very end of the temptation, the 40 days, God actually sends the angels to provide for Jesus what he himself could have done, could have provided for himself, but Jesus only waited obediently for God to supply him at God's good timing. Now, when we look at this temptation, we might not think it's a very big deal, right? But it's a very big deal because it's the very first thing that we read about Jesus. And it's very important because it shows Jesus as unique and special. In the whole of human history from Adam and Eve up to, to past, even past Jesus today, there has never been a sinless person. Jesus needs to be sinless to be obedient in order to be a sinless sacrifice for us. So I remember uh, listening to this song when I went to England to visit my son, right? This song was playing on the radio all the time and even my aunt was singing this song all the time on the car. It was getting irritating, right? And um, I, um, maybe you all know this song because I, I shared this song in the first service and they were all just like, never heard this person. Anyway, you can Google it. It's quite interesting. And this guy, he writes about how, you know, I'm only human after all. I'm only human after all. Don't put the blame on me. Don't put the blame on me, all right? I'm only human. I make mistakes. I'm only human. That's all it takes. Don't put the blame on, to put the blame on me. Don't put the blame on me. I'm only human. I do what I can. I'm just a man. I do what I can. Don't put the blame on me. Don't put your blame on me. Okay. Now, obviously, he sings it with a lot, lot lower voice. Right? Don't put the blame on me. Right. Okay. But you understand what this song is talking about. And what Jesus has done here is the first and one of the most significant things that he's done. He is not a human like the rest of us. He is sinless. And it is so important because Jesus shows himself as perfectly qualified 
to be someone worth following. All other humanity will fail you. King David, Moses, Solomon, Jesus does not disappoint. He is sinless. So once he has passed this test, he begins his ministry. So in verse 12, he says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what had been said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now you notice that Jesus' message is exactly the same as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But it is near in a very different way because John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus. But Jesus, when he comes, is the light that dawns in darkness. Now, People have a problem understanding this image. What is this light that comes to darkness? Light can be truth, knowledge, wisdom. But if you look at this passage, the light that Jesus brings is for people living in the darkness of death. That's what it says. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The darkness that we live in is the darkness of death. Jesus is the light that dawns, that brings life to those living in darkness of death. He is the one who brings eternal life. And this help, that helps us to understand what Jesus does in his healing in verse 23 to 25. Because the healing is an authentication of Jesus' light of life coming into the world. He is like pushing back the darkness of death in this world. So in verse 23, it reads, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, I want you to look at this map, right? All over, people were coming to Jesus. Syria is in the north. Decapolis is the Greek region in the east. Judea, they were all coming up to Galilee where Jesus was. Why? Because he healed everybody. He was the light of the world, pushing back the darkness of death. I mean, he wasn't some sort of con man, you know, selling like a, you know, cure for backache, right? Uh, you know, like if you wear just magic band, your pain will go away, right? He was healing people with paralysis, healing people who had seizures, uh, all sorts of things. So Jesus here shows that he is the light that has come into this dark world. And therefore, the right response to Jesus is to follow him. So in verse 18, look at what it says. 
As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now what is important to see here is that Jesus was not some sort of hypnotist. It's not as if he came up to Andrew, uh, Simon Peter, James and John and like, look at this thing carefully, you will follow me, right? Jesus has the authority to call people, yes, but they followed him because they recognized that he was worth following. Uh, you can read in the other Gospels, they had heard of Jesus, they had seen Jesus, they had, they had knowledge of Jesus, and they left everything to follow him. See, Jesus was special. And from their perspective, there was, he was worth leaving immediately at once and giving out everything. See, the disciples were not some hopeless losers, right? They left livelihoods. If you see here, if you look carefully, James and John left a family business. The family was rich enough to own a boat. But yet they left to follow Jesus. Now I think that that's a challenge for us, right? Because if they can see who Jesus is, that he is this special person, we should be able to see more. We see him as sinless. We see him as the light dawning in this dying world, the light of life. And therefore, he is worth following. Now in conclusion, um, if you go around Singapore, if you pay attention, right? You see this really strange sight. If you go to the HDB uh, or you know construction sites or anything, you see all these big blocks of stone or concrete piled onto these metal beams. Has anybody else seen this? Is it only me? Oh, good. There's one person who's seen it. Okay. If you ever go around, there are these piles of concrete on these metal things. Why? Is it here? So I used to think, you know, maybe like, like, like storing these concrete blocks, right? You know, like who knows why they have it. So the next slide. Then I uh, was walking, uh, I don't know, I was talking to somebody, some engineer, I think, who was telling me that actually, no, they don't put these big concrete blocks on these metal things to store the concrete blocks. Actually, what they're doing is they're testing the piling beams. Because these are the beams that they pile deep into the, the ground to support the whole building. So they want to test how strong they are. Because obviously, if they fail, they're not going to build a building based on these uh, piling beams, right? So you measure, uh, you know, a few years ago, in Gilstead Road, near Newton Circus, uh, this happened, right? They had all these uh, concrete blocks, and they put it onto the piling beams. And obviously, the piling beams failed. And all the concrete blocks fell down. They nearly, uh, it nearly uh, destroyed this church in Gilstead Road. It's a Bible Presbyterian church. Okay? Um, now, I think that's really interesting, right? Because in, 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 in the same way, like Jesus is the one who has been tested. 
and he has passed the test. Every other person, every other human being, every other human leader is like this Gilstead Road one. We've all been tested and we've all been found wanting. We've all been tested and we've all failed. So, Lionel Messi, a great footballer, convicted of cheating on his tax. Uh, Stephen Jobs, you think Stephen Jobs is a really great guy, you, you know, you read his biography, he's actually not a very nice person at all. Even Barack Obama, right? I remember meeting some American guy, he was like, oh, Barack Obama, he's the future, right? So I remember reading uh, in the Washington Post, out of the 40 promises he made before he was president, he broke 17 of them, he kept 11, and he compromised on 12. Now, that doesn't sound like a very good record, but I guess, you know, He's so okay, I suppose. So at the end of the day, Jesus is the only one worth following in life. Someone asked a very good question in my Bible study group last week. He says, you know, what's the difference between Jesus and a cult leader? Because, you know, people follow cults also, right? People give out a lot of things to follow cult leaders. And I think that at the end of the day, what we reached as a conclusion was the difference between Jesus and a cult leader is that the cult leader will always fail you. You will always find the cults over time, they will disappoint. They will be found wanting. They will fail. But Jesus has been tested and He has proved faithful. He has been tested and He has been found to be the sinless one. He is the one who brings life into a dying world. So He is worth following. And by the end of this passage, we have to ask ourselves, are we really following Jesus? Are we following Him as He should be followed? Because there is no one worth following but Jesus. And He has shown in His actions, in His temptation, in His healing, that He is the only one that we should follow. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may really take to heart what you have written in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus is the sinless one. All human beings have been tested and failed. They have all succumbed to temptation, even the great leaders. Jesus has overcome that as your Son. Dear Father, help us to see that He is also the light which has dawned on this earth. As He brings His kingdom, He pushes forth and pushes back the darkness of death and that we can only come to Him to find eternal life. There is no other place where there is light in this dark world. So we pray for each and every one of us that we will follow Jesus because He has been tested and found to be worthwhile and faithful. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.